Okay, Corey, I'm thinking of a number between 1 and 10 million. Guess what it is. Seriously? Yes. This is the worst intro ever. Are you holding it up behind your back? No. Come on, just guess. Fine. Uh, 7.3 million. That's right. 7.3 million. That's the number of units, single family or multifamily, that the country has underproduced from 2000 to 2015, according to work from Up for Growth. And that shortage of supply has contributed to the affordability crisis. The question is, what's holding us back? Why can't we just build our way out of this? Hello, and welcome to the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Corey Aber. Today we're going to talk about the shortage not just of affordable housing, but of housing units overall. And we'll look into some of the challenges that make it so hard to close that supply gap. We're joined today by Mike Kingsella, the executive director of Up for Growth. Up for Growth has been doing a lot of work studying the supply gap and some of the factors that could be addressed to reduce it. Mike, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Steve. All right, Mike, we've been tracking the supply shortage and the drop in new supply since the Great Recession for some time, uh, looking at it nationally, but certainly seeing it in all the deals that we do, uh, you know, as we see property values go up, rents go up. Uh, what got you so focused on the issue? Well, Corey, I, I've spent my career in housing for about the past 15 years. I, actually, I started my career at a, at a Fannie Mae, uh, one of your competitors, uh, a dust lender, uh, working on multifamily uh, underwriting and, and mortgage analysis. Uh, and so throughout my career, I've been really focused on the housing space and on the issue of affordability. I actually got my start academically uh, from a community development and urban planning standpoint. So I guess housing is really in my blood. Uh, but uh, as, a, as, a, as, an org, as a part of the Oregon Trail generation straddling Gen X and, and millennial, I know acutely uh, how short we are of housing uh, and how many people our severe shortage of homes really affects, whether you're talking about multifamily affordability or the ability for folks to buy their, their first home. Uh, our housing market has become less and less functional uh, over the past several decades, and, and, it's, and it's only getting worse. So from a mission-driven standpoint, uh, we felt that Up for Growth National Coalition uh, was a needed organization uh, to do deep-dive research on, on our nation's shortage of homes and really what policies, but more importantly, local strategies could be applied uh, to really move the needle uh, on, on, this, on this serious issue for our nation. So let, let's put that in a little bit more context, sort of about the national, uh, the national shortage. I know you've done a lot of research uh, on that. You know, so what are, what are some of the key findings there, key points? Well, Up for Growth National Coalition, when we launched, really knew that it needed to focus on our, how severe our shortage of homes are across the country. Uh, and, and really focused on the fact that this shortage is not a California-only issue. It's not a New York issue. Truly, it's a national issue. So our first piece of research really sought to ask two questions. One, we all know we have a housing shortage, but how deep is that shortage? Uh, what, we were very interested in quantifying how many homes should have been built, let's say, over the past 15 years versus how many homes were actually built. And then secondarily, as a, an organization that is very interested in strategies to address this serious shortage of homes across the country, 
you know, what's the case for folks interested in moving those kinds of strategies forward to do so? And so our research really thought about uh, what are the positive economic impacts or what are the positive fiscal impacts or even what are the positive environmental and traffic congestion impacts of not only building more homes to really fill this severe gap, um, but also thinking about land use and where are those homes built. And as we make different assumptions around land use, you know, what, are the, what are those relative benefits? I think it's great how Up for Growth has um, helped the industry by collecting data and, uh, and finding that from 2000 to 2015, there's a shortage of 7.3 million households that, would have been, that needed to be built. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think it's, you know, we come at this not from an industry perspective, actually. We, we come at it from the perspective of a broad and diverse group of stakeholders. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned environmentalism earlier, but it's not just environmentalists and, say, folks interested in economic growth and multifamily professionals. Also chambers of commerce, workforce development organizations, uh, traditional Hauser organizations like enterprise community partners. Uh, it's groups that you might not expect engaging on housing because so many people, given the depth of this crisis, Corey, to your point, the, the depth of this crisis is impacting so many stakeholder groups. And so we really come at this from a, from a public interest perspective and, and really looking to help Americans uh, get more access to housing, get more housing choice, and ultimately more affordability. And I think it's interesting that you you not only cover the housing part, but like you say, it, it broadens out and you, you cover smart growth and planning kind of activities as well and the, the, the benefits of high density and things like that. Maybe you can speak to that a little bit. Yeah, certainly. Uh, one of our advisory board members, Joe Courtright uh, from Portland, Oregon, is a big thinker on smart growth and, and housing and urban issues generally. He always likes to say that you know, we don't have a shortage of housing. We have a, a shortage of cities. And really what I think he means by that is we have a, a shortage of very specific types of housing, whether that's first-time home ownership opportunities, single-family homes that really meet the need of folks today seeking uh, that type of product or smaller multifamily units that are walkable uh, to jobs and major employment centers that are seeing a rapid increase in, in housing demand. We might have an oversupply of our large four-plus bedroom single-family homes in drivable suburban locations uh, that are very affordable, but with them carry Know, additional cost burdens relative to uh, transportation, auto expense, that sort of thing. So uh, we, we certainly take that nuanced approach of where are those shortages based on home type and also geography. And, and our research that I mentioned earlier uh, speak to that. But, but more fundamentally, Up for Growth National Coalition is, is very interested in this debate going on right now around systemic um, long-time land use restrictions and artificial barriers to housing that really perpetuate uh, social and economic inequity. And I think we've started to see conversations going on around the country starting to really deal with that, whether you're talking about Minneapolis's 2040 comprehensive planning process or some of the the laws being enacted in, in states around the country dealing with exclusionary zoning. So 
up for growth is as interested in, I think, bottom line, um, the question of how short are we in terms of needed housing and the segmentation of where those gaps are, uh, but also what are the fundamental drivers to our shortage of housing and really how do we think about that and producing data and research that informs folks who are developing strategies to address this, this housing shortage that we're facing. And, and so you've looked at a couple cities so far and, and some of those those questions in detail, right? So Seattle maybe uh, the first one that you looked at, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, from a research standpoint, uh, the underproduction report was really our first foray into engaging on this conversation. But but like I said, we're really interested in what are the what are the strategies that could be employed to really change the status quo, to move from a housing shortage to really move to a to an environment where we have more of a balance uh, in, in in the housing ecosystem. So that really led to our our next major research project, which we are underway on, uh, which we call the housing policy and affordability calculator. Uh, and this is a way to think about at a very local level what are the what are the drivers uh, of the shortage? What are the drivers of availability of housing and ultimately affordability of housing? And I think that's a unique place where, where you've kind of positioned yourself, where you're able to take a look at the, the broader market with the research reports you refer to. And then you know, the solution to the process is actually getting things built. And that's very much at a property level, which is where your tool comes in. Certainly. And, and it's interesting that uh, our first version of this tool really focuses on multifamily. The fortunate element of the discussion around availability and affordability on the multifamily side is data is more and more transparent, more and more available. As, as you all know, here at, here at Freddie Mac, you're able to access a lot more information today on property operating performance uh, than you would say 20 years ago. So we live in an era that you know a lot more is digital, a lot more is in databases, a lot more is accessible. Still, uh, there's a real gap of access of primary market um, information and inputs and assumptions if you're trying to run this type of analysis. So there's real work to be done. But, uh, but that is in large part why Up for Growth National Coalition has, has chosen to, to focus on multifamily first. Uh, we do have plans on expanding to single family uh, ultimately with this calculator tool as well. So let's dig into this tool a little bit. So you started in Seattle with the tool. Uh, first of all, what's the tool called? And and then let, let's walk through how it works. Absolutely. Yeah, Corey, the, the, the tool is called the Housing Policy and Affordability Calculator uh, for a couple of reasons. First, we wanted to build a calculator uh, that allows anyone really, no matter their level of sophistication, no matter whether or not they know how to interpret and analyze and run a real estate pro forma, to understand the trade-offs between different policy choice points at the local level uh, and what that means as far as market rent or availability of housing or production of housing or uh, cost burdening um, from a citywide level. So we wanted to build something that was interactive, that was relatable, that was understandable for the average person uh, that is interested in this issue, you know, whether that's a, a member of the public uh, or a staffer at a city hall or even you know, someone working here. Uh, so that's, that's the first piece. The reason we call it the housing policy and affordability calculator is that we think there is a real tension oftentimes between 
different policy decisions that might not even be related to housing uh, at the municipal level. For instance, public finance or community engagement uh, and community involvement in, in neighborhood uh, uh, and community development. Uh, and so we wanted to create a place where not only would, you, would, would one be able to look at, say, inclusionary housing and think about the calibration of that policy related to affordability, but how might you think about community design review processes or how much you think about um, different elements in the zoning or building code that on its surface might not relate to housing affordability but do create impacts on housing availability and affordability. So that's that was really the premise of this tool and, and, and why, we, why we chose to, to build it. And on Seattle, uh, we had to start somewhere. Uh, Seattle is a, a place that, that is experiencing rapid growth and rapid rent increase, um, despite the fact that that city is actually building um, a significant um, percentage uh, of, of, of multifamily high-density housing. So uh, we thought it was an interesting case study and a, and a good place to start because there were those layers, uh, but it was a small enough city. Uh, we're accessing that primary market research and, and building the tool wouldn't be as onerous as, say, starting in Los Angeles or New York City. And earlier you talked about the impacts of decisions that are that are made along the way in the development. And what I like is those are actually quantified in the tool. Uh, maybe you could just start and walk through how somebody gets started in the tool and, and measures some of these impacts. Sure. Well, to access the tool, uh, it's available for the public at, at www.upforgrowth.org backslash housing dash calculator, or you can click a link off the homepage. Uh, and so it's built to be really accessible and easy to use. So when one goes to the website, uh, there is some general overview text at the top. There is then a, a selector as far as the types of housing that one can analyze and understand using the calculator. And in the case of Seattle, we're able to look at mid-rise or podium apartment buildings. And we are also able to analyze high-rise steel and concrete towers uh, in Seattle's urban core. So those are the two options. And then down below the property selector, uh, we offer four different categories of policy levers uh, that could be manipulated. So whether that's thinking about affordable housing-specific policies or environmental and environmental impact policies or policies that seek to create opportunities for the community to engage in community development and design decisions uh, or public finance. And so it's oriented around tabs. You know, users can go on once they've selected a property type, select their general area of policy interest, and then scrolling down, we offer up uh, not only a list of policies that fall underneath each of those categories, but descriptive text, why does the policy exist, and then what are the range of choice points as far as what the policy requires. So in the case of, oh, design review, uh, you might think about how many months that process takes. Or in the case of an impact fee, you might think about what are the dollars per unit that might be charged. So this is a really customized tool specific to that city's regulatory framework. And we've tried to set up in a way that's very understandable and provides as much background as anyone would want uh, uh, based on their level of sophistication. So you, you were able to tie dollar values uh, to the particular decisions you can make in the tool. So how did you get that data? 
That's right. So we base that data on really three general areas of input. Um, first, simply interviewing market participants. Uh, so folks who are building apartments, you know, what are the things that you run into policy-wise that affect uh, either your development budget uh, or operations of a property? And the other two areas were land use attorneys uh, who are very familiar with the regulatory framework uh, in that particular city as well as folks in the public sector. In fact, we worked with our, one of our partner organizations, the Housing Development Consortium, and convened a focus group of stakeholders from all three of those categories together uh, to really test the tool at an early stage and to gather additional input around uh, the, the regulatory framework that, that we modeled. That's a lot of expertise that kind of gets wrapped up into this tool overall that can then turn into you know, really uh, tangible information on how projects are impacted. Maybe you could give us an example of, of one that's been through the process? Sure. And, and I, I should also start that by saying one of the improvements that we made to this calculator based on focus group impact was really designing the, the website so that as you manipulate your assumptions around different policies, you can at the same time on the right-hand side of your screen see the results. Uh, so so take, take an example, uh, a mid-rise apartment building in Seattle. Uh, off of a status quo scenario, everything's modeled off of the baseline, all the policies currently in place in Seattle today. So you can make assumptions around increasing requirements or, or restrictions on housing, uh, or you can make assumptions around reducing requirements or restrictions. So we, we thought about the – let's think about the property tax a bit. There's a program in Washington state called Multifamily Tax Exemption or MFTE. And that program has been around for a little over 10 years. It's actually cited – um, by many as one of the models for mixed income, um, multifamily development uh, for the nation as a whole. Uh, so we, we assume in this, in this mid-rise scenario that it's a completely market rate scenario. And then we said, well, let's think about what happens if you do get that 12-year property tax exemption. Uh, and so it turns out that rents for a mid-rise building would – need to support a level that is approximately 8% lower than today's market rent if the public, through a property tax exemption, invests in that property. So rent goes down $207 per apartment unit per month, according to the calculator. Well, that's a real value um, to affordability writ large, but you know, is that good policy, right? So you can think about, okay, well, what does, else does that enable me to do and again, mimicking the, the MFTE program in Washington state, we're able to say, well, what happens if we provide that tax exemption but require that 20% of the project is set aside as affordable? And it turns out that that is essentially uh, a break-even level of feasibility. So a $0 rent shift with that benefit coupled with that burden, if you will. Uh, and so... That's one of the first key findings from this calculator. You're not all – we're not here to say that not all policies or, or regulations are, are bad. We like the fact that there's earthquake regulation in, in California. It makes you know, buildings a bit more to, uh, uh, to build. 
uh, but but we're happy building snowfall down in case of an earthquake. So there are trade-offs here, and so that's the point of this calculator. It's a framework to create a common language uh, between folks from different backgrounds without maybe a, a real estate uh, background to understand there are impacts of certain policies, there are benefits of certain policies, and there's a way to calibrate different policies together, looking at this through a holistic lens and to achieve public benefits and ensure that the, the housing market is, is, uh, is, is organized such that we can also achieve a goal of increasing housing production overall. It struck me as, as particularly uh, interesting and, and meaningful that you can look at that not just at the property level, but you have a, a way to view that as you know broader uh, community impact based on just what's happening at that property. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in the case of that policy, it's kind of hard because it's a break-even. There's another example I always like to look at, and one of the reasons we we thought about uh, building this tool in the Seattle community because at the time in in 2018 there were some local debates about whether or not to enact impact fees uh, on new uh, multifamily housing uh, throughout the city. So you know, just for f- folks who might not have been to Seattle recently, it's, it's a very infrastructure-rich community, lots of public transit, lots of infrastructure, ferry service in and out. I mean, it's as infrastructure-rich as, as you can get. But the community is struggling with some deferred maintenance, um, particularly in highway and uh, in, in freeway infrastructure uh, in and out of the city. And of course, Seattle is famous for its traffic congestion. And so there's a natural, I think, tendency for municipal policymakers to look to real estate uh, as a general place to access funding uh, for a whole variety of of public benefits, whether or not it relates to housing or housing affordability. So in this case, the community was having a big conversation around impact fees. Uh, And so we thought about, well, what is the impact if the city ultimately decides, let's assess a $15,000 per unit impact fee on new multifamily construction in the city of Seattle? What's the impact viewed through the lens of impact on the pocketbook of the ultimate renter on day one new construction rent for, say, a high rise. So we model that in this calculator tool. And what the tool shows us is that there's a direct rent impact on day one new construction of about a 2% rent shift to above today's rents, rent levels. Uh, and that's about $600, $600 per year per apartment as the impact of this policy. It also happens to that rent shift over today's rents is a function of decreasing project level feasibility. So if costs go up and all else is held equal, construction, other construction costs, cost of debt, a rate of return on equity, uh, Feasibility, based on research from the UC Berkeley Turner Center, our analysis of that research, feasibility falls by about 13%. So we're building 13%, let's say, less than we otherwise would. And so because of the scarcity of new apartments being made available to newcomers to the city of Seattle, those fewer apartments can command more rent. So that explains the 2% shift. But Corey, to your point, really exciting thing we think about this calculator, it's not just looking at the economics at the project level, but we look at citywide outcomes as well. Uh, And so in this case, uh, we see with a $15,000 per unit impact fee assessment, um, the implication is that citywide 400 
and 25 fewer units are built over the next three years compared to our baseline scenario. Uh, And that also means that average rent citywide, so not just on new construction, but citywide, your average rent for multifamily increases by 2.7%. You might ask why 2.7% versus the 2% rent shift for new construction. We have a really wide delta uh, between the cost of new apartment rent versus your average market rent. So if you think about all of the older housing stock competing against something, now they're competing against something much more expensive than it would otherwise be. And so that headroom actually drags average apartments in that community at a higher rate than new construction apartments, So, which is a very interesting finding for it, our Am standpoint. I right in understanding that's sort of like the opposite of filtering? You build something new and then everything else becomes more expensive? We call it reverse filtering, right? So, and I think, you know, to that point, and that's a really important point as we think about affordable housing policy writ large, simply building more housing or enacting pro-housing uh, policy solutions, it actually helps moderate income level renters a lot more than low income renters uh, because we are experiencing a housing crisis that's decades, 30 plus years in the making. We just haven't been building enough housing year after year after year. And so it's an interesting situation where the folks that are getting harmed the most, who are feeling the most disproportionate burden because of this underproduction of homes, those are the folks at the bottom 25% of the income spectrum. So because we're not building enough housing, the folks in the middle can get along. They're cost burdened in many cases, but the folks at the very, you know, the left or left most side of the income distribution are the ones that are experiencing disproportionate levels of cost burdening. Um, in the the inverse of that is if we build more housing, who's benefited? The fact that we haven't been building enough housing for decades means that it's going to take a long time for that filtering benefit to to really reach those folks at the bottom end. The folks who are going to receive the benefit more immediately are those moderate to upper income renters. Uh, so that's a finding that I think you know, certainly we draw out in our white paper associated with the calculator. It's a finding that I think speaks to the need um, for all of the work that Freddie Mac is doing and all of the local uh, affordable housing strategies really seeking to drive more resource to affordable housing while at the same time uh, our efforts to address the constraints to building needed housing is important as well. So it's a it's a complex problem, but we've got to attack it from both ends. We can't just say let's shift the framework so more housing gets built because you're it, you're not going to you know, solve the the folks who need it uh, immediately without without strategy by by itself. I think that's that's really well said on where the impacts are felt and and. Um and I think even leading up to that, the whole discussion of being able to see the balance of what the cost of different parts of the production process are. Uh, people make the argument that rent is set by supply and demand, and so cost of production is less relevant. With your tool, you've made very explicit how the cost of production changes, and then it makes it, makes it clear that the developer decision or the person putting these apartments into the market um, 
we'll see how that compares to market rents and what the economics of that building are. And then it's a discrete decision as to whether to deliver that or not. And that changes the, the balance of supply and demand. So I think that it's really an important um, uh, piece of work that informs the industry in a, in a really important way. That's right. And I, and I think that uh, – I, I think that's absolutely right, Steve. I, I would just also add, you know, it's not only about direct fees, right, or direct cost decisions or cost uh, burdens that are intentionally uh, placed on producers of multifamily housing, let's say. Uh, one of the surprising findings out of the calculator tool has been that it's not always these explicit housing policies or impact fee policies that drive a, a lack of or, or a downward shift in, in housing production or upward shift in rent. Uh, sometimes it's, it's seemingly innocuous, small technical details in the zoning code uh, that could make that difference. So one of the areas that we, we, we made the decision to analyze in the calculator uh, is a policy called the the maximum floor plate requirement. Uh, that's a, a small part of the city's downtown zoning code. And it essentially says if you're building a tower uh, over six floors, you have to restrict the floor plate to specifically 10,500 square feet. So we thought that was really interesting given that in a lot of areas of, of downtown Seattle, you could feasibly build up to 15,000 square foot floor plates and maintain other code requirements like tower spacing requirements or view corridor, other urban design planning elements. So given the significant delta between the restriction and what would otherwise be feasible uh, from an urban design standpoint, we thought let's dig into this policy and quantify that. So it turns out that if the 10,500 square foot floor plate restriction didn't exist and you can shift in the calculator under design uh, to a 15,000 square foot floor plate uh, assumption, that the cost of that is the loss of about, well, over 200 units of housing on a high rise. Right? Of that scale – at a 40-story high-rise, you're essentially going from buildable under the current policy, 360 apartments, to buildable, assuming 15,000 square foot floor plates, 585 units. And then from a rent perspective, just on that policy alone, the rent impact is 5% or about $155 a month. So to put that in context, if you compare this policy to the impact fee policy I described earlier, you're looking at well more than double the scope of the impact. And then, Corey, to your citywide impact point earlier, you, know, you think about this at a project level, the numbers are staggering. But citywide, the cost of this policy alone is about 1,775 units that would get built were it not for this rule that is in place in the zoning code. So these are staggering numbers, and it's it's not something that would be at the top of someone's radar screen, right? You think impact fees, you think project delay. So that's the other element here is that, yes, the economics, we are explaining in a way how adding cost 
to the production of apartments ultimately drive down supply, which create that imbalance, create the affordability challenge. But, you know, these are intentional decisions here. And, you know, look at that and you say, wow. But the good news is a technical fix to something like that is actually quite easy once the problem is identified. So identifying these these underlying reasons is as much the work of the calculator as thinking about housing economics writ large. Yeah, you're right. Uh, that impact to supply is really fascinating and uh, and certainly affects the market. And the precision that you put on all these things uh, does, like you say, some, some decisions seem really simple when you have all those numbers in front of you. So it's a lot of great work. Um, what do you have uh, on the agenda for, for the future? Well, we're looking to roll this calculator out for 30 cities across the country. And so we are engaged in the first set of six cities. Uh, we're actually kicking off the, the project with several of our team members tomorrow morning, uh, looking at uh, Atlanta, Georgia, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, Boston, Massachusetts, and out on, on the western U.S., we're we're going to be looking at Boise, Idaho, uh, which is actually at the tipping point of a housing crisis of their own, uh, as well as Portland, Oregon, and San Diego, California. That's great. I mean, I, you find that uh, very major cities get discussed a lot. And uh, in recent years, you hear more about the Boises of the world because the issues everywhere. So that'll be useful to have all these extra markets. Absolutely. So, Mike, thank you so much. I mean, this is really fantastic work and can't wait to see the next uh, iterations of the calculator and, and uh, dig into some more cities. So how can people keep following along with this, uh, with this work? Absolutely. Well, thanks, Corey. Uh, so we've designed this research to be very accessible. Uh, so the first way is to you know, follow us on our website at www.upforgrowth.org. We're also on Twitter at up4growth. And, and, and I should also just throw in one last you know, parting thought on the why I'm so excited about this calculator. And that's that you know, we're not looking at these cities on a one-off basis. The really cool thing about this calculator is that as we program these different policies into the tool for all of these different cities, we'll be able to start to think about, well, what happens if we take that great policy in Seattle and we look at what that means for Boise? You know, where are the best practices and quantitatively what will be the impact of certain practices from city to city around, around the country? And so we're hoping as much as elevating and amplifying this whole discussion around availability and affordability or identifying specific policies that impact housing economics, we can start to facilitate the cross-pollination of the really good and creative ideas that cities around the country are coming up with as they grapple with this housing affordability challenge. And I, and I would think that you know, certainly decisions made in, in one city can, can affect uh, other cities around them, whether it's to attract people from other cities to, to the one making the policies or uh, maybe it becomes a chance for others to – for uh, residents to explore other cities and maybe that's how you get Boy so much growth in Boise uh, in recent years. Well, that's yeah. That's the elephant in the room. As 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 individual cities move their regulatory framework around and change the dynamics within their local housing markets, uh, and certain markets are more affordable relative to others, that in and of itself will create impacts on the housing demand side. So, you know, to be continued, perhaps on a future podcast. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks so much, Mike, for being here and for uh, detailing all this work. I think uh, Corey and I are going to go back and use the tool right now. And, uh, <laughs> and thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you're interested in more, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud.